Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Part 2. Chapter 1. The Indian Ocean. We now come to the second part of our journey under the sea. The first ended with the moving scene in the Coral Cemetery, which left such a deep impression on my mind. Thus, in the midst of this great sea, Captain Nemo's life was passing, even to his grave, which he had prepared in one of its deepest abysses. There, not one of the ocean's monsters could trouble the last sleep of the crew of the Nautilus, of those friends riveted to each other in death as in life. Nor any man either, had added the captain. Still, the same fierce, implacable defiance towards human society. I could no longer content myself with the theory which satisfied Conseil. That worthy fellow persisted in seeing in the commander of the Nautilus, one of those unknown savants who return mankind contempt for indifference. For him, he was a misunderstood genius who, tired of Earth's deceptions, had taken refuge in this inaccessible medium where he might follow his instincts freely. To my mind, this explains but one side of Captain Nemo's character. Indeed, the mystery of that last night during which we had been chained in prison, the sleep and the precaution so violently taken by the captain of snatching from my eyes the glass I had raised to sweep the horizon, the mortal wound of the man, due to an unaccountable shock of the Nautilus, all put me on a new track. No, Captain Nemo was not satisfied with shunning man. His formidable apparatus not only suited his instinctive freedom, but perhaps also the design of some terrible retaliation. At this moment, nothing is clear to me, I catch but a glimpse of light amidst all the darkness, and I must confine myself to writing as events shall dictate. That day, the 24th of January, 1868, at noon, the second officer came to take the altitude of the sun. I mounted the platform, lit a cigar, and watched the operation. It seemed to me that the man did not understand French. For several times I made remarks in a loud voice, which must have drawn from him some involuntary sign of attention, if he had understood them, but he remained undisturbed and dumb. As he was taking observations with the sextant, one of the sailors of the Nautilus, the strong man who had accompanied us on our first submarine excursion to the island of Crespo, came to clean the glasses of the lantern. I examined the fittings of the apparatus, the strength of which was increased a hundredfold by lenticular rings, placed similar to those in a lighthouse, and which projected their brilliance in a horizontal plane. The electric lamp was combined in such a way as to give its most powerful light. 
Indeed, it was produced in vacuo, which ensured both its steadiness and its intensity. This vacuum economized the graphite points between which the luminous arc was developed, an important point of economy for Captain Nemo, who could not easily have replaced them. And under these conditions, their waste was imperceptible. When the Nautilus was ready to continue its submarine journey, I went down to the saloon. The panel was closed, and the course marked direct west. We were furrowing the waters of the Indian Ocean, a vast liquid plain, whose waters are so clear and transparent that anyone leading over them would turn giddy. The Nautilus usually floated between fifty and a hundred fathoms deep. We went on so for some days. To anyone but myself, who had a great love for the sea, the hours would have seemed long and monotonous. But the daily walks on the platform, when I steeped myself in the reviving air of the ocean, the sight of the rich waters through the windows of the saloon, the books in the library, the compiling of my memoirs, took up all my time and left me not a moment of ennui or weariness. For some days we saw a great number of aquatic birds, sea mews or gulls. Some were cleverly killed and prepared in a certain way, made very acceptable water game. Amongst large-winged birds, carried a long distance from all lands and resting upon the waves from the fatigue of their flight, I saw some magnificent albatrosses, uttering discordant cries like the braying of an ass, and birds belonging to the family of the long wings. As to the fish, they always provoked our admiration when we surprised the secrets of their aquatic life through the open panels. I saw many kinds which I never before had a chance of observing. I shall notice chiefly ostracians, peculiar to the Red Sea, the Indian Ocean, and that part which washes the coast of tropical America. These fishes, like the tortoise, the armadillo, the sea hedgehog, and the crustacea, are protected by a breastplate, which is neither chalky nor stony, but real bone. In some, it takes the form of a solid triangle, in others, of a solid quadrangle. Amongst the triangular, I saw some an inch and a half in length, with wholesome flesh and a delicious flavor. They are brown at the tail and yellow at the fins, and I recommend their introduction into fresh water, to which a certain number of sea fish easily accustom themselves. I would also mention quadrangular ostracians, some dotted over with white spots in the lower part of the body, and which may be tamed like birds, trigons provided with spikes formed by the lengthening of their bony shell, and which, from their strange gruntings, are called sea pigs. Also dromedaries, with large humps in the shape of a cone, whose flesh is very tough and leathery. I now borrow from the daily notes of Master Conseil. Certain fish of the genus Petrodon, peculiar to those seas, with red backs and white chests, which are distinguished by three rows of longitudinal filaments, and some electrical, seven inches long, decked in the liveliest colors. Then, as specimens of other kinds, resembling an egg of a dark brown color, marked with white bands and without tails, diodons, real sea porcupines, furnished with spikes and capable of swelling in such a way as to look like cushions bristling with darts, hippocampi, common to every ocean, some pegasi with lengthened snouts, which their pectoral fins, being much elongated and formed in the shape of wings, allow, if not to fly, at least to shoot into the air. 
From the 21st to the 23rd of January, the Nautilus went at the rate of 250 leagues in 24 hours, being 540 miles, or 22 miles an hour. If we recognized so many different varieties of fish, it was because, attracted by the electric light, they tried to follow us. The greater part, however, were soon distanced by our speed, though some kept their place in the waters of the Nautilus for a time. The morning of the 24th, in 12 degrees 5 south latitude and 94 degrees 33 longitude, we observed Keeling Island, a coral formation planted with magnificent cocos, and which had been visited by Mr. Darwin and Captain Fitzroy. The Nautilus skirted the shores of this desert island for a little distance. Its nets brought up numerous specimens of polypi and curious shells of mollusca. Soon, Keeling Island disappeared from the horizon, and our course was directed to the northwest in the direction of the Indian Peninsula. From Keeling Island, our course was slower and more variable, often taking us into great depths. Several times, they made use of the inclined planes, which certain internal levers placed obliquely to the waterline. In that way, we went about two miles, but without ever obtaining the greatest depths of the Indian Sea, which soundings of 7,000 fathoms have never reached. As to the temperature of the lower strata, the thermometer invariably indicated four degrees above zero. I only observed that in the upper regions the water was always colder in the high levels than at the surface of the sea. On the 25th of January, the ocean was entirely deserted, the Nautilus passed the day on the surface, beating the waves with its powerful screw and making them rebound to a great height. Who under such circumstances would not have taken it for a gigantic cetacean? Three parts of this day I spent on the platform. I watched the sea. Nothing on the horizon, till about four o'clock a steamer running west on our counter. Her masts were visible for an instant, but she could not see the Nautilus being too low in the water. I fancied this steamboat belonged to the P.O. Company, which runs from Ceylon to Sydney, touching at King George's Point and Melbourne. At five o'clock in the evening, before that fleeting twilight, which binds night to day in tropical zones, Conseil and I were astonished by a curious spectacle. It was a shoal of argonauts traveling along on the surface of the ocean. We could count several hundreds, they belong to the kind which are peculiar to the Indian seas. These graceful mollusks moved backwards by means of their locomotive tube, through which they propelled the water already drawn in. Of their eight tentacles, six were elongated and stretched out floating on the water, while the other two, rolled up flat, were spread to the wing like a light sail. I saw their spiral-shaped and fluted shells, which Cuvier justly compares to an elegant skiff, Abode indeed. It bears the creature which secretes it without its adhering to it. For nearly an hour the Nautilus floated in the midst of this shoal of mollusks. Then I know not what sudden fright they took. But as if at a signal every sail was furled, the arms folded, the body drawn in, the shells turned over, changing their center of gravity, and the whole fleet disappeared under the waves." Never did the ships of a squadron maneuver with more unity. At that moment night fell suddenly, and the reeds, scarcely raised by the breeze, lay peaceably under the sides of the Nautilus. 
The next day, 26th of January, we cut the equator at the 82nd meridian and entered the northern hemisphere. During the day, a formidable troop of sharks accompanied us, terrible creatures which multiply in these seas and make them very dangerous. They were sharks with brown backs and whitish bellies, armed with eleven rows of teeth, eyed sharks, their throat being marked with a large black spot, surrounded with white like an eye. There were also some Isabella sharks, with rounded snouts marked with dark spots. These powerful creatures often hurled themselves at the windows of the saloon, with such violence as to make us feel very insecure. At such times, Ned Land was no longer master of himself. He wanted to go to the surface and harpoon the monsters, particularly certain smooth hound sharks, whose mouth is studded with teeth like a mosaic, and large tiger sharks, nearly six yards long, the last named of which seemed to excite him more particularly. But the Nautilus, accelerating her speed, easily left the most rapid of them behind. The 27th of January, at the entrance of the vast Bay of Bengal, we met repeatedly a forbidding spectacle, dead bodies floating on the surface of the water. They were the dead of the Indian villages, carried by the Ganges to the level of the sea, and which the vultures had not been able to devour. But the sharks did not fail to help them at their funeral work. About seven o'clock in the evening, the Nautilus, half immersed, was sailing in a sea of milk. At first sight, the ocean seemed lactified. Was it the effect of the lunar rays? No, for the moon, scarcely two days old, was still lying hidden under the horizon in the rays of the sun. The whole sky, though, seemed black by contrast with the whiteness of the waters. Conseil could not believe his eyes and questioned me as to the cause of this strange phenomenon. Happily, I was able to answer him. It is called a milk sea, I explained, a large extent of white wavelets often to be seen in these parts of the sea. But, sir, said Conseil, can you tell me what causes such an effect? For I suppose the water is not really turned into milk. No, my boy, and the whiteness which surprises you is caused only by the presence of myriads of infusoria, a sort of luminous little worm, gelatinous, and without color, of the thickness of a hair, and whose length is not more than seven thousandths of an inch. These insects adhered to one another, sometimes for several leagues. Several leagues, exclaimed Conseil. Yes, my boy, and you need not try to compute the number of these infusoria. You will not be able. For, if I am not mistaken, ships have floated on these milk seas for more than forty miles. Towards midnight the sea suddenly resumed its usual color, but behind us, even to the limits of the horizon, the sky reflected the whitened waves, and for a long time seemed impregnated with the vague glimmerings of an aurora borealis. Chapter 2 A Novel Proposal of Captain Nemo's On the 28th of February, when at noon the Nautilus came to the surface of the sea, in nine degrees four north latitude, there was land in sight about eight miles to westward. The first thing I noticed was a range of mountains about 2,000 feet high, the shapes of which were most capricious. On taking the bearings, I knew that we were nearing the island of Ceylon, the pearl which hangs from the lobe of the Indian peninsula. Captain Nemo and his second appeared at this moment. The captain glanced at the map, then turning to me said, 
the island of Ceylon, noted for its pearl fisheries. Would you like to visit one of them, Monsieur Aranax? Certainly, Captain. Well, the thing is easy. Though if we see the fisheries, we shall not see the fishermen. The annual exportation has not yet begun. Never mind. I will give orders to make for the Gulf of Manar, where we shall arrive in the night. The captain said something to his second, who immediately went out. Soon the Nautilus returned to her native element, and the manometer showed that she was about thirty feet deep. "'Well, sir,' said Captain Nemo, "'you and your companion shall visit the bank of Manar, "'and if by chance some fisherman should be there, "'we shall see him at work.' "'Agreed, Captain. "'By the by, Monsieur Aranax, "'you are not afraid of sharks.' "'Sharks!' exclaimed I. "'This question seemed a very hard one. "'Well,' continued Captain Nemo, "'I admit, Captain, "'that I am not yet very familiar "'with that kind of fish.' "'We are accustomed to them,' replied Captain Nemo, "'and in time you will be too. "'However, we shall be armed, "'and on the road we may be able to hunt some of the tribe. "'It is interesting. "'So till tomorrow, sir, and early.' "'This said in a careless tone, Captain Nemo left the saloon. "'Now, if you were invited to hunt the bear "'in the mountains of Switzerland, what would you say?' "'Very well. "'Tomorrow we will go and hunt the bear.' If you were asked to hunt the lion in the plains of Atlas, or the tiger in the Indian jungles, what would you say? Ha-ha, it seems we are going to hunt the tiger or the lion. But when you are invited to hunt the shark in its natural element, you would perhaps reflect before accepting the invitation. As for myself, I passed my hand over my forehead, on which stood large drops of cold perspiration. Let us reflect, said I, and take our time. Hunting otters in submarine forests, as we did in the island of Crespo, will pass. But going up and down at the bottom of the sea, where one is almost certain to meet sharks, is quite another thing. At this moment Conseil and the Canadian entered, quite composed and even joyous. They knew not what awaited them. "'Faith, sir,' said Ned Land, "'your Captain Nemo the devil take him, has just made us a very pleasant offer.' "'Ah,' said I, "'you know.' "'If agreeable to you, sir,' interrupted Conseil, "'the commander of the Nautilus has invited us to visit "'the magnificent Ceylon fisheries tomorrow, in your company. "'He did it kindly, and behaved like a real gentleman. "'He said nothing more?' "'Nothing more, sir, except that he had already spoken to you of this little walk.' "'Sir,' said Conseil, "'would you give us some details of the pearl fishery?' "'As to the fishing itself?' I asked. "'Or the incidents? Which?' "'On the fishing,' replied the Canadian, "'before entering upon the ground, "'it is as well to know something about it. "'Very well. "'Sit down, my friends, and I will teach you.' "'Ned and Conseil seated themselves on an ottoman, "'and the first thing the Canadian asked was, "'Sir, what is a pearl?' "'My worthy Ned,' I answered, "'to the poet a pearl is a tear of the sea. "'To the ladies it is a jewel of an oblong shape, "'of a brilliancy of mother-of-pearl substance.' "'which they wear on their fingers, their necks, or their ears. "'For the chemist, it is a mixture of phosphate and carbonate of lime, "'with a little gelatin. "'And lastly, for naturalists, it is simply a morbid secretion of the organ "'that produces the mother of pearl amongst certain bivalves. "'Branch of mollusks,' said Conseil. "'Precisely so,' my learned Conseil. All those which secrete mother-of-pearl, that is, the blue-bluish-violet or white substance which lines the interior of their shells, 
are capable of producing pearls. Mussels, too, asked the Canadian. Yes, mussels of certain waters in Scotland, Wales, Ireland, Saxony, Bohemia, and France. Good, for the future I shall pay attention, replied the Canadian. But, I continued, the particular mollusk which secretes the pearl is the pearl oyster. The pearl is nothing but a formation deposited in a globular form, either adhering to the oyster shell or buried in the folds of the creature. On the shell it is fast, in the flesh it is loose, but always has for a kernel a small hard substance, may be a barren egg, may be a grain of sand, around which the pearly matter deposits itself year after year successively, and by thin, concentric layers. "'Are many pearls found in the same oyster?' asked Conseil. "'Yes, my boy, some are a perfect casket. One oyster has been mentioned, though I allow myself to doubt it, as having contained no less than a hundred and fifty sharks.' "'A hundred and fifty sharks!' exclaimed Ned Land. "'Did I say sharks?' said I hurriedly. "'I meant to say a hundred and fifty pearls. "'Sharks would not be sense.' "'Certainly not,' said Conseil. "'But will you tell us now by what means they extract these pearls?' "'They proceed in various ways. "'When they adhere to the shell, "'the fishermen often pull them off with pinchers. "'But the most common way is to lay the oysters on mats of the seaweed, "'which covers the banks. "'Thus they die in the open air, "'and at the end of ten days they are in a forward state of decomposition. "'They are then plunged into large reservoirs of seawater.' Then they are opened and washed. The price of these pearls varies according to their size, asked Conseil. Not only according to their size, I answered, but also according to their shape, their water, that is their color, and their luster, that is that bright and diapered sparkle which makes them so charming to the eye. The most beautiful are called virgin pearls or paragons. They are formed alone in the tissue of the mollusk, are white, often opaque, and sometimes have the transparency of an opal. They are generally round or oval. The round are made into bracelets, the oval into pendants, and being more precious are sold singly. Those adhering to the shell of the oyster are more irregular in shape and are sold by weight. Lastly, in a lower order are classed those small pearls, known under the name of seed pearls. They are sold by measure, and are especially used in embroidery for church ornaments. But, said Conseil, is this pearl fishery dangerous? No, I answered quickly, particularly if certain precautions are taken. What does one risk in such a calling, said Ned Land, the swallowing of some mouthfuls of seawater? As you say, Ned, by the by, said I, trying to take Captain Nemo's careless tone, are you afraid of sharks, brave Ned? I, replied the Canadian, a harpooner by profession. It is my trade to make light of them. But, said I, it is not a question of fishing for them with an iron swivel, hoisting them into the vessel, cutting off their tails with a blow of a chopper, ripping them up, and throwing their heart into the sea. Then it is a question of, precisely, in the water, in the water. Faith with a good harpoon, "'You know, sir, these sharks are ill-fashioned beasts. "'They turn on their bellies to seize you, and in that time—' "'Ned Land had a way of saying seize, which made my blood run cold. "'Well, Conseil, what do you think of sharks?' "'Me,' said Conseil. "'I will be frank, sir.' "'So much the better,' thought I. 
"'If you, sir, mean to face the sharks, "'I do not see why your faithful servant "'should not face them with you.'" More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.